and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. As our gospel text opens, we find the disciples are gathered together in the most reasonable of places, a home with all the doors locked and surely all the curtains drawn. And the disciples weren't just being paranoid. No, the disciples feared that what had just happened to Jesus might soon happen to them, and that fear was very well founded. You see, by following Jesus, the disciples had made enemies with essentially everyone that mattered in Israel. Everyone from chief priest to the Roman governor knew their faces, they knew their names, and virtually no one of status or reputation would even give them the time of day. Their Lord had just been executed. The one they followed and revered was dead and buried. What was stopping the disciples from suffering the same exact fate? And as if the existential threat of their own death weren't enough, Jesus was dead. The one they believed to be God's Messiah had just been executed in the most heinous and shameful way possible. As they they huddled together in that locked room, they struggled to make sense of what Jesus' death might mean. Had they been wrong about Jesus? Did the death of Jesus signal that he wasn't God's Messiah after all? And if the death of Jesus demonstrated that Jesus wasn't God's Messiah, if Jesus wasn't the Son of the Father as the disciples believed Him to be, then wouldn't that mean the disciples followed a false teacher, a charlatan? And if that were true, if the disciples had followed after a false god, then wouldn't that mean they had made enemies of the real one? And we can't underestimate how that fact must have weighed on their minds. The disciples had pushed all of their proverbial chips to the middle. They had gone all in on Jesus being the Messiah, and now he was dead. They were next, and there were no one to help them. But then in in the midst of this swirling storm of fears and questions, Jesus appears seemingly out of thin air. He was standing in front of them, alive in a way they could not comprehend. His hands, his feet, his side all bore the marks of his crucifixion. There was no mistaking it. This was the same Jesus the disciples had followed for three years. This was the same Jesus that was crucified upon the cross, the same Jesus that was buried in the borrowed tomb. And now he was standing in front of them 100% alive. And you would think that his appearance would have solved everything, that his appearance would have satiated every fear the disciples had. If Jesus was alive, then they hadn't been wrong about the Messiah at all. If he were alive, then they hadn't betrayed God at all, right? Except betrayal of Jesus was exactly what the disciples had done. On the night of his arrest, in what was his most excruciating hour, who was it that couldn't even stay awake and pray with Jesus? The disciples. Who was it that led the pack of guards and soldiers to arrest Jesus? Judas, one of the disciples. After his arrest, who was it that denied they even knew Jesus? Peter, one of the primary leaders of the disciples. Every single disciple abandoned or betrayed Jesus in his most crucial hour. And to top it all off, John was the only disciple that even bothered to show up for the crucifixion. As a group, The disciples had betrayed, abandoned, and denied Jesus. They were complicit in his arrest, complicit in his crucifixion. They were guilty of treason and cowardice. 
And now the one whom they had betrayed stood in front of them, vindicated in all he had ever said or done. But when Jesus speaks to them, what pronouncement does he make? What words does Jesus speak? He says, peace be with you. Can you even imagine of all the things Jesus would have been justified in saying, he spoke peace. And that seems to be a cornerstone of the gospel itself. Jesus is still in the business of speaking peace to those who have betrayed him. He still speaks peace to those who have made war on him, those who have slandered and denied him. He is still speaking peace to those who spit in his face and curse his name. He is still willing to speak peace to every single rebellious heart. The judgment I deserve for the multitude of sins I've committed, the judgment you deserve for the same, the judgment we would have been justified in receiving was nowhere to be found when Jesus showed up. Instead, the God I had mocked and blasphemed, the God I had made war upon looked at me. He looked at me and said, peace. And whatever else a Christian is, it is certainly a person who has heard those sweet words of peace and responded to that offer of peace with surrender. I think everyone present in that locked room did exactly that. They heard the words of peace with grateful hearts and they responded. Every one of them did that. Everyone that is except for Thomas. Despite this incredible encounter, despite everyone having the same story about the same Jesus saying the same things, Thomas remained skeptical. He refused to believe that Jesus had truly risen from the dead. And listen, guys, I get it. Jesus being risen from the dead was just too good to be true. Thomas's doubt is understandable. It's relatable even. How many of us have had our doubts about the faith? How many of us have questioned the validity of the resurrection, the veracity of the biblical text, or whether Jesus even existed? It all just sounds too good to be true. All my sins are forgiven. God loves me. Death is dead, and Jesus is preparing a place for me where I will live with him forever. Okay. I remember thinking, all of this sounds great, but it's just wishful thinking. It might be nice if it were true, but there's no way that something that good is real. And I don't know if Thomas had the same thoughts. And in preparing this, I desperately tried not to impute to Thomas my modern skepticism. But whatever the motivations of Thomas were, whatever the origins of his doubts may have been, Jesus does not condemn Thomas for having them. Instead, Jesus offers Thomas an invitation. Hey, you got your doubts? Fine. Put your finger right here. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. And I think Jesus is still in the business of doing exactly that. Jesus knows all of the impediments of our belief. He sees everything that stands between us and him. And Jesus offers to overcome those obstacles by showing you himself in ways you cannot imagine. He offers you a life with him you could never generate for yourself if you would but reach out to him. And if you would do that, what would transpire in your life will seem impossible. And the Gospel of John seems to specialize in the impossible. It begins with the incarnation, God making that which you can't see, the invisible, visible. 
And now almost 20 chapters later, John is ending with the resurrection. God is making that which is impossible possible. The new power that is being fed into creation is so potent that every single thing it touches is made new as well. The resurrected Jesus can take that which is dead inside of you, that which has no hope, no future, and with the sweet breath of God himself, Jesus can resuscitate you. What is dead can be given new life. And I've never met one single person who didn't need that. Every single person you've ever seen is in desperate need of this new life. Every single person you've ever known has been made by God to receive it. Creation itself is groaning for it. There is a deep, deep need of this life in every single nook and cranny of the whole universe. And the good news of the gospel is that there is a deep, deep reservoir of life pulsating in Jesus just waiting to be given. His offer is for that resurrected life, the very life of God, to be placed in you. My brothers and sisters, an offer this impossibly good can only be met with one response. Let us declare with the same conviction as Thomas did when he beheld the resurrected Jesus, that Jesus is our Lord and our God. Amen.